We're in the book of Philippians, and we're going to start chapter 3 today. And I've titled this morning's message, Look Out for False Teachers. You know, even in the early church, false teachers were already trying to creep in. I love the way Jude says they creep in. It means they're creeps, right? I've been in churches where false teachers have crept in. Years ago, when I first got out of the Navy... By the way, when I sit down and talk to young people now about my Navy days, I feel like an old man. Remember, and I remember when I was in the Navy, you know, early 20s, and, and guys talking about, you know, way back when, when I was in, and now I feel like that old guy. Way back when, when I was in. Sonny, let me tell you. Anyhow, way back when, when I first got out, we were in a church in Pennsylvania. There was a man who crept into the church, who started bringing in a lot of strange doctrine. My wife and I went to one of his classes he had in the evening, and it was supposed to be teaching of the wickedness in video games, which, by the way, this was late 90s. And let me tell you something, video games have not improved over the last 20-some years. All right? There's a lot of wickedness in video games. But here's the problem. The way the guy presented it was not in a way to want to steer you from it. He presented it, in my opinion, in a very enticing way to want to draw you toward it. You follow what I'm saying? You know, you ever hear the testimony of somebody's life before they were saved? And instead of it being, God saved me out of this wicked, vile life, it's almost as if they're glorifying that former life. Is anybody awake? Anybody ever hear somebody do that? And then you kind of scratch your head and say, are you telling us how bad it was or are you telling us what you miss? And I appreciate that because that's the way it should be. Because I guarantee she knows things about the occult that she could present it in a way that would sound enticing, right? Well, this guy would present then the occult and the wickedness in video games in such a way as to make it enticing. Then he started having a group with the kids And all of a sudden, all of them got rid of their King James Version of the Bible and got this complete Jewish Bible. And then every time we saw them in church, they had a prayer shawl on and everything else. And I'm like, "Uh, we're not Jews, and we don't have to keep the law, and I don't understand what's going on here. And when I approached a pastor about it, he said, don't worry about it, we have it under control. Because I thought, hey, what is this wickedness creeping in to our church? I think the pastor eventually did take care of it. But here's the problem. It did damage. Every time false teachers try to creep in, it does damage. We've had here at Freedom Baptist Church people who come and visit and then will pull me aside afterward to tell me how wrong our doctrine is. I remember one guy in particular telling me, he goes, uh, basically he was a Calvinist, and I said, well, we're not. And then he, he sat there and insisted on arguing with me for 20 minutes, and I eventually said, sir, I believe you'd feel more comfortable in another church. I said, I don't believe this is a church for you. Say, well, that's harsh. Let me tell you something. That's trying to protect you all. Because somebody like that would sit there, and here's how they work. They find, they don't go to the strongest Christian in the group. They find the young Christian, the ones who aren't grounded yet. And then they start putting all these question marks in their mind. You know, pastor said, 
but is that what God's word really says? Let me tell you what I believe it says. And then they twist God's word to make it sound so fancy, but they're not uh, uh, um, interpreting the word of God correctly. So am I harsh on false teachers? Well, Jesus was, and I think that's where we need to stand, is very harsh against false teachers. You know, part of the reason why we have you sign a statement saying you agree with the doctrine of this church is so that if we ever get somebody who tries to creep in here as a false teacher, we can hold them accountable and say, you, pro- you said you agree to this, you obviously are teaching opposite. Either you need to get right with God, or this probably is not the church for you to be fellowshipping with, because you lied to us, right? That's not being mean, is it? That's trying to protect the flock, because let me tell you something. I have seen churches destroyed by false teachings, Okay? But it's nothing new. So here Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he has to warn them because they have false teachers, in this particular case, Judaizers, which were teaching that one must be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. Kind of sounds a little bit like the guy I just told you about. I mean, he wasn't saying they had to be circumcised, but he's making them follow this complete Jewish Bible and do all these Jewish things, do I have to keep the law in order to be saved? No. That actually, folks, is a false teaching, and I believe blasphemy because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. And there's no way I can. And so it's saying that the work of Christ is not enough. So let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things unto you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So I want us to examine these three points. First of all, in verse 1, we'll notice looking to Christ. Looking to Christ. Verse 2, we'll observe looking out for false teachers. And yes, point 2 is my title. Sorry. And then in verse 3, looking to the Spirit for filling. Christian, you and I must be alert for false teachers. Father, I pray you guide now as we examine this passage. Give wisdom. Teach us, Lord, and be observant and discerning in all things. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Finally, my brethren, and then he writes two more chapters, but the finally is not necessarily a conclusion as much as it is a transition. He was looking, looking at Christ as an example to now looking at how we are to live. Okay, so if Christ is our example, now here's how you apply that, Christian. Here's how we are to live. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Again, the theme of this book is rejoicing, is it not? Rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't ever have sad times. It doesn't mean that we don't have trials in life. But it does mean that no matter what, I can have joy. Do we not find Paul and Silas when they're locked in jail singing praises to God? Why? Because no matter what their circumstances were. And by the way, the jail back then was not a place that had a nice cot and heat and lights and, you know, uh, three hot meals. I mean, it was, a, it was a nasty place, okay, where Paul and Silas are sitting, and yet they could rejoice. 
Because, Christian, it doesn't matter our circumstances. We still can have joy in the Lord. But in order to have the true joy in the Lord, He has to be your Lord. He has to be your Savior. And sometimes when I see people who are all gloomy, the Eeyores who claim to be Christians, sometimes by their fruits I question, do you really know Jesus Christ? Because you should have joy in your heart. You know what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not talking somebody who has a bad day, okay? We all have that, right? But I'm talking somebody every time you meet them. It's like Eeyore. Oh, the sun came up today. Probably going to get too hot. Oh, it's raining today. I'll probably get sick. You know, Eeyore was always gloomy, wasn't he? Never happy. He could find the worst in everything. And some Christians live that way. Now, let me ask a question. If you're living like that, why should the world want what you have? Oh, I love Jesus. My aches and pains. I'll just endure them. Life is miserable. Don't you want to be saved? What? No, I don't want what you have. You're a miserable person. I actually worked with a guy at Walmart who was this way. He was sitting there complaining and griping and complaining about management, complaining about his job, complaining about this. And somebody else walks in and he, he says, oh, by the way, Jim and I are Christians. Would you like to know what it means to be a Christian? The guy just looked at him like, you're stupid. And I looked at him like, how dare you? Sit here and complain in front of this guy and then ask him if he wants to be a Christian. I almost felt like apologizing to the other guy, saying, I'm really sorry about him. I, <laughs> I didn't, but I, I was really sat there dumbfounded. What do you do in a situation like that? To rejoice in the Lord, rejoicing has the idea to be glad. Our joy is found in Christ. See, I've heard this statement. You know, I'm sure you have all heard this one. How are you doing? Okay, for his, under the circumstances. Well, how about stop living under the circumstances and live as a conqueror? More than conquerors. Nehemiah 8.10 tells us, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoicing in Christ will give you strength. Now, did they have a hard time? If you, for those who were here just a few years ago, Ed did a wonderful Sunday school series on the book of Nehemiah. Were the folks going through a hard time? Yeah. Could they have the joy of the Lord? Yes. And Nehemiah reminded them, that's your strength. Our focus needs to be on God and His Word for guidance. Well, I have nothing to rejoice in. Really? Are you born again? Are you the possessor right now of eternal life? Have your sins been forgiven? Has God been merciful to you? Look back at verse 27 of chapter 2. For indeed, He was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only him, but also on me, on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Just stop and think for a moment of everything God has done for you. He doesn't have to give you the health you have. He doesn't have to give you, we could go on all the blessings that he's given. The older I get, I've had bad eyes since I was born, but the older I get, the worse my eyes get. I don't do a whole lot of driving at night anymore. I still do a little bit. Mostly my wife drives at night because it's really getting hard to see. You know, if it keeps going, I'm going to need even larger print than this to see my Bible. But even if God were to take my eyesight altogether, could I still rejoice in Him? But we need to rejoice 
in Him, not the things of this world. Too often we rejoice in the things of this world. Here's an example from Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. What's the problem with that statement? Before I read the rest of this, Jesus tells them what's wrong with it, but anybody remember what's wrong with that statement? Even the devils are subject to us in thy name. Jesus says unto them, he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Wow, look at all these great things God is doing through us. Wow, look at all these great things. Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in heaven. Now, it doesn't mean we can't rejoice in the works of God, okay? But when they're saying, oh, wow, even the devils are subject unto us. Is that giving glory to God? Or is that taking glory upon self? They're They're subject to me. No, they're not. They're subject to him. And it's his power working through me. And so everything we need to understand, the praise needs to be diverted to God because he's the one that deserves it. Right? Okay. I do appreciate, I said a few weeks ago, we are preaching and I said something about all those that come up and say, preacher, that was a great message, but then never apply it. Nobody came and talked to me afterward. That's no lie. That was kind of funny, actually. Because almost every time, not every time, but many times when I'm done preaching, somebody will come up and say, thank you, pastor, I appreciate that, or something along those lines. Why I appreciate that? I try to be careful because it's God's Word doing its work. Now, is it an encouragement to hear? Yes, it is. However, it's not because of anything I've said or I've done. It's because of God's Word. You understand? It's not the messenger. It's the message. So we need to be careful to divert. And I try to be careful to say, well, praise the Lord. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Because I do thank you for letting me know that God's working in your heart. That is important to know. But God deserves the praise for it. So, whether it be somebody singing, whether it be somebody reading the scripture, whether it be even Ed leading the music, let me tell you something. We don't do this for show. It's not a performance. It is for ministry. We're doing it for Him. Right? Everything we do, whether you're cleaning the toilets, you know what? It's ministry. It's doing it for Him. When we have our church work day, we're doing it as unto the Lord. When you're working in the nursery, you're changing diapers as unto the Lord. Thank you so much for doing so, too. I do appreciate that. We do it as unto God, right? Not taking the praise to ourselves. It's not about me. It's about Him. But we need to be reminded. So Paul continues, To write the same thing unto you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. How many times did you tell your children the same thing over and over and over and over 
You know, and then all of a sudden they start to get it, and then they become a teenager, and their brain falls out, and then they forgot it all, right? And then it's not until they're in their 20s that they finally remember what you taught them. Or when you went to school, how many times did you practice writing A, A? Remember they used to have a paper with the dotted lines so you could follow the A, and then you had to keep following the A, and then they had empty space, and now you have to do it yourself, and the teacher wanted that whole line full of A's. And then they had the audacity the next day to make you write A's again. And then she would give you a test and you had to write the A again. Why? Because repetition is good. Repetition helps us learn. When I was in college, I was trying to remember what class I had learned this particular thing in. And I remember who, what teacher it was. It was Dr. Childs. So I started pulling out all the classes I had with Dr. Childs. And I found that pretty much every class I took with him had this particular thing in it. And I was like, oh, that's probably why I remembered it, because he repeated it every class. It was interesting working on the radio. Years ago, when I first started helping FBN, the very first shift I worked, I worked with Hap Ritchie. If you don't know Brother Hap Ritchie, he's in glory now, but he was blind. And so Brother Hap was used to having to listen to everything. And he had this little writer, and I really can't explain it, but he would somehow type on this thing in Braille, and then he would actually be able to read his little messages to himself on the radio. And if you ever hear Hap Ritchie, who still actually is on some of the commercials, he's the guy that sounds like he has that voice for radio. I don't know how else to explain it, but uh, anyhow, Brother Hap Ritchie um, taught me when I was sitting there, he says, Okay, now when we come back on the air, you need to repeat what the goal is, what day we're on, and what this is all about. Introduce our names again. And he would go over all this, and I'm like, didn't we just do that? He goes, yeah, but it, it may sound very repetitious to us, but to those listening, it will sound perfectly normal. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this. And I thought about that. Because, you know, when I was, took homiletics class, they taught us, when you announce your text, announce it a minimum of three times. When you get up to announce a song, announce it a minimum of three times. How many of you have actually paid attention to preachers who, when, when, you, when they announced their text, how many of you have listened and actually heard them say the text three to four times? Most of you probably haven't. are like, okay, now that I think about it, yeah, I realize that, but I didn't realize it listening to it because it sounds normal, right? So yesterday, when we were at the or Friday night when we were at the radio station, we got a caller call in and say, you guys aren't announcing the numbers enough. Because somebody said that they were driving and they wanted to call in. Actually, they said when we did give it, we gave it too fast. And I don't know how 252-223-4600 is too fast, but whatever. Uh, so I told one of the other guys there during one of the breaks, the story I just told you about Hap teaching me this. Anyhow, the point being is this. We constantly need to be reminded. And repetition is a good thing. And many times you don't even realize the repetition is happening, but the repetition helps you remember it. And so, honestly, there's many times I stand up here and preach, and I feel like, I just preached this last week. Or I just preached this two weeks ago. Or I just preached this a month ago. Sometimes I'm like, I just preached this a year ago. But, okay, and then I sit down and I think, is it reasonable for me to expect you all out there to remember what I preached a year ago? 
Is that really a reasonable expectation? I don't think so. Is it really reasonable for me to expect you to remember everything I preached even two months ago? No. So if I repeat it, then it's really not a bad thing, is it? You follow what I'm saying? Sometimes I don't remember what I preached three months ago, okay? And that's why I write notes and take, write a calendar down of all that I preach. But anyhow, Paul says, it's good for you and it's not grievous for me. It's not troublesome for me to write these things again. You know, a preacher or teacher of the word should never tire of repeating the principles of God's word. The message of the gospel of the grace of God should never get old, should never be tired of hearing it. We should never grieve over being reminded to rejoice in the Lord. But Paul says, for you, it is safe. There's safety in Christ, so focus on him, and he will give you clear direction. Now let's move on to verse 2. Beware of false teachers. Beware. Beware. It means be alert, see, discover, pay attention, be on the lookout. Those that served in the military understand what it means to be on a watch or a duty or whatever you want to call it, but... Sometimes it meant literally standing out, looking in the middle of nothing, and paying attention and see if anything's approaching, right? Did you guys have to do that too? Yeah, I figured you would, right? Because it doesn't matter what branch of the military it is, you have to set up a perimeter. Even on a ship, you have to sit there and look out at the empty sea to make sure nothing's approaching. Even though we have radar to tell us that, but you never know, you have to watch for it. All right, the watches are important. I remember many times being a fire security watch, so everybody else is sleeping, and I'm the guy that's awake roaming around making sure the building's not on fire. That's probably pretty important, right? Galatians 2.4 says, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. They slip in unaware. I was told of a watch on board ship who reported to the uh, officer of the day that all was well on his deck. And the officer of the day goes, well, that's pretty interesting because there's been a fire team fighting a fire on your deck for the last 15 minutes. What do you mean all is well on your deck? He was a roving watch, but he obviously wasn't roving. He'd just go to the radio every so often and report that everything's fine. I bet that did not end well for him. I even had one time when I was a roving watch, I had this first class tell me, he goes, you can stop roving. I was like, look, it's three o'clock in the morning. If I don't keep walking, I promise you I'm going to fall asleep. He made me sit down next to him. And then when he woke, yelled at me for uh, falling asleep, I told him, I said, I told you, I don't want to sit down. I will fall asleep. But anyhow, they caused division and destroy the church. So he says, beware of dogs. Now, that's an interesting term because Jews use, often use this term of Gentiles, calling them dogs. Now it's interesting, Paul is taking this term and turning it on the Judaizers, calling them dogs. Barnes states the reference here, doubtless, to the Judaizing teachers, and the idea is that they were conscientious, troublesome, dissatisfied, and would produce disturbance. So as a sign you often see, beware of dogs, right? Well, that should be kind of our thought all the time. Beware, don't let the dogs creep in. And when you see a sign in a yard that says, beware of dogs, do you proceed with a little more caution than you would have if you're going to go knock on somebody's door? 
One time I was out with two other guys, and we saw the sign that said, Beware of Dogs. And the one guy laughed. He goes, Well, I hope we don't run into any. I said, Look, all I know is I've got to be faster than you two, and I'll be all right. It says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers. They are laboring for evil. Laboring for evil, referring to the same as the dog. But Paul, Paul considered their work evil. You see, anything that adds to salvation, anything that adds to the gospel, is evil. It's evil. It's against the Redeemer who gave his life to save us. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. I believe that anything that adds to salvation that says, is Jesus Christ plus something is a doctrine of devils. Because salvation is Jesus Christ alone, period. And anything that says, is this plus this is a doctrine of devils and needs to be avoided and needs to be pointed out for what it is. We could go on with a whole list of doctrines of devils. Anything that adds to the work of Christ. Anything that Changes the gospel. You know, the teaching that you don't get the Holy Spirit of God until you can speak in tongues. That's not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches the moment I'm saved, I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The doctrine that teaches that some are elected to heaven and the rest are damned to hell by God's eternal grace and mercy is a doctrine of devils. So then he continues on. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. The concision has the idea of mutilating or cutting in pieces. Now, he's referring back to the fact that Judaizers are saying, you must be circumcised. He's saying, these are the ones that are cutting and mutilating, if you will. He says, to keep circumcision is of none effect. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again, every man that is circumcised, he that is debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become a none effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Excuse me, you are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. By the way, the Seventh-day movement, whether it be Seventh-day Adventist, Seventh-day Baptist, Seventh-day, whatever they want to call themselves, is still, in my what I believe, going back to the law. They're saying, well, wait a minute. God never changed the part about the keep the Sabbath. And so they say we should be meeting on Saturday. Well, actually, the Sabbath wasn't a worship day per se. It was a rest day. Is that correct? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Now, the New Testament says Jesus Christ is our rest. He is our Sabbath. Is he not? He fulfilled that. And we see the New Testament church meeting on, Paul says it very specifically, when you come together on the first day of the week. 
But again, this is another form, if you will, of, well, but we got to keep this part of the law. Well, if I got to keep that part of the law, then that would mean I have to keep the circumcision. That means I have to keep all the law. It means I have to go back to all of it. And that's what Paul is trying to help the early church understand is that, look, folks, you can't pick and choose which parts of the law you like and say, now this makes me better. But if you want to go under the law, then you need to go under the entire law. But you're going to fail if you try to do so. Therefore, it is better to realize Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. So instead of trying to work your way to heaven by your own righteousness, put your faith in Jesus Christ and allow his righteousness to be imputed to your account. But false teachers always add to, and it always ends up being, a works salvation. And let me tell you something else about the false teachers. When you look at their doctrine and you come to the end of it, you will never have a complete assurance of your salvation. Folks, that is not of God. And so, yes, we try very faithfully to beware of any false teacher trying to step into Freedom Baptist Church. And I would appreciate any of you who ever notice a false teaching or false rumbling in this church to point it out so that we can squash it like a bug. Not the people, but the teaching, okay? So, Paul is saying circumcision is no more value than mutilating yourself in any other way. Now let's move on to verse 3. Looking to the Spirit, fulfilling. For we are the circumcision. Now that does not mean that the church is a replacement of Israel. That is another false teaching, okay? The church does not replace Israel. Nor does it place us in the Abrahamic covenant. But he says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and in truth. You see, we are to show there's been an inward change of the heart. Deuteronomy 10.16 says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. Colossians 2, 5, uh, Paul writes, well, let's turn over there, if we will, please. Colossians chapter 2. Starting in verse 5, Paul writes, For though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, joining and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. How did you receive Christ? By faith. How are you to walk? By faith. Rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein and went therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You see, Christian, what Paul is trying to say is... Faith in Christ, there's a, working, there's a change in us. But it's an inward change. It's not an outward sign as circumcision, but there's an inward change that will result in an outward outflow, right? Because what's in your heart is going to flow out. And so if there's been a change in the inner man, the outer man is going to change, right? And then Paul continues. He says, Which worship God... In spirit. John 4 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him, it must worship him in spirit and in truth. Again, it's the inward working 
that God does in our hearts. You see, Christianity is not just trying to clean up the outside. Did not Jesus even call the um, Pharisees whited sepulchers? They try to clean up the outside, but they're still full of dead man's bones in the inside. I am glad the Holy Spirit washes from the inside out, aren't you? You know, one thing I can't stand is dishes when you look in the inside of it and it's still dirty. It's like, oh, that's going back in the dishwasher. But when we are changed on the inside, when the Holy Spirit does His work on the inside, there will be a natural flow on the outside. We need to be careful that we don't judge one's spirituality by the things that they do or the things that we see necessarily on the outside. What I mean by that, okay, I'll give you this illustration. I heard a church once, and it's a good church, I don't mean to pick, okay, but I think this was done a little bit wrong. Somebody came into church, they got saved, they got baptized, and then they were told, so if you put a suit on next week, we can make you an usher. Okay. Sometimes I also have heard churches say, ladies, you need to dress modestly. This is what you must do. Now, I believe a lady, men and ladies should dress modestly, don't you? But to sit there and dictate. Now, we do have rules for those that are serving in this church, a dress code. But may I say, when I worked, my very first job, after working for my grandfather, my second job then, I guess, my first real job? I don't know. No, because the first one was real too. But my first job where I was not working for family was People's Drugstore. And they had a dress code. I had to wear a button-up shirt. I had to wear uh, at least a khaki-type pants. It could not be jeans. And I had to wear a tie. And it was not just any tie. It was a red tie that had little peas on it for people's drug. And every day I showed up to work. Now, you know what my job was? Stocking shelves and sit in sales. I worked a cash register and I stocked the shelves and I would sweep the floors, whatever basically needed to be done around the place, okay? I had to wear a button-up shirt and a tie doing this every single day. It bothers me when people say, well, why do I have to dress a certain way to, to work at church? Well, if I had to do that representing people's drugstore, and you're going to work in the nursery, or you're going to be an usher, or you're going to be doing a work here at the church, and you're representing the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then shouldn't you look the part? Uh-oh, it got quiet. The answer is yes, it should. Yes, I should. So let's stop arguing about it and let's just do it. Worship God in spirit. Not the outward working, but the inward working. Oh, I know why. Because I was telling you about a guy who was told, wear a suit and you can do whatever. Okay, here's the thing, though. I honestly believe if you want to follow God's word, you should always be dressed modestly. If you want to follow God's word, it's not hey, I can dress this way at certain times because of who I'm around, but then when I'm around Christians, I'll dress a different way. Now, I do not wear a suit and tie all the time. But even when I am wearing jeans, I don't wear the jeans that look like they fit me when I was 11 years old. Okay, I wear jeans that actually fit. And I will always have on at least a t-shirt and not a holy one. My wife chooses to always be in a skirt or culottes. Now, when it's cold out, sometimes she'll put 
sweats underneath it or something. People say, well, that's weird. Why don't you just wear the sweatpants? Well, because I, it, we still have a standard that we believe God wants us to have. Okay. Now, the point being is when you study the Scriptures, God talks about showing of the nakedness. And it very specifically talks about the covering of the thigh. Right? And may I just be quite frank, ladies, your cleavage is for your husband. Period. No other man needs to see it. Cover it up. Right? Okay. People are like, oh, preacher's gone to meddling this morning. It got awfully quiet. We got two minutes. We need to be filled with the Spirit to worship in spirit. Ephesians 5.18 And be not drunk with wine where is an excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul says we don't have confidence in the flesh. Look at the end of the verse and we'll move quickly. And have no confidence in the flesh. The flesh cannot save. Do not trust the flesh to save you or keep you. We cannot work to earn salvation, and we cannot work to keep our salvation. We need to beware of false teachers. Look to Christ and rejoice in Him. Look out for false teachers and avoid them and their false doctrines. Look to the Holy Spirit for filling. We're going to close with a word of prayer.